you please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 807 and 808. And like our Gospel reading in Luke, this is a very familiar passage. This is also one of the two birth narratives, one of the two infancy narratives we have of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as it is Christmas Day, it is appropriate for us to read both of these narratives. And I'm going to start this reading after Jesus' birth and read about the visit of the wise men, the Magi. We don't know exactly how long after Jesus' birth was this visit. Was it days? Was it months? Was it more than a year? The text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that our nativity scenes get it wrong. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were no longer in a stable. Jesus was no longer in the manger during this visit. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem. Of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. Lord, these are familiar words that we hear every Christmas. Lord, we pray that you give us fresh eyes to see what you would have to say to us this morning in this place. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be upon me, that I will speak only your truth, only your words. And I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit will be with each one of us, opening our hearts, opening our minds, opening our ears to hear that message that you have for us. And Lord, we pray that we will be changed. Each one of us here will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, every Christmas there seems to be Christmas wars. There seems to be this struggle between the the commercial Christmas, that is the the hustle and the bustle of of decorating and shopping and wrapping presents and sending Christmas cards and going to holiday parties. And and if you're you're a teacher or if you're a student, it's even worse. It's even more stressful. You've got finals and you've got projects and you've got grading all the work associated with the end of a semester. And it is a stressful time. And we, we know that all this activity, though, We know this is not the true meaning of Christmas. We know this. We know this because of all of our favorite Christmas movies and all our favorite Christmas stories tell us that this is not the true meaning of Christmas. 
So what is the true meaning of Christmas, according to the Christmas carols and the Christmas stories and the Christmas movies? Well, summing up the true meaning of Christmas is peace on earth and goodwill to men. According to them, the true meaning of Christmas is, is not outward possessions, but it's relationships. It's coming together in love and, and family and, and community, even love for our enemies. It's an end to hostility. This is the true meaning of Christmas. <clears throat> the true meaning of Christmas is the Who's singing on Christmas morning, even after the Grinch had stolen all of their presents. And then the love, this love causes the Grinch's heart to, to grow three times bigger. And then he also returns all the presents and he's reconciled with the Who's. The true meaning of Christmas is Ebenezer Scrooge's transformation from a miserable, lonely miser to a loving, generous benefactor of the Cratchit family and the community. The true meaning of Christmas is the whole town coming together to help the desperate friend uh, George Bailey, who is about, to, is about to take his life. The true meaning of Christmas is when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, after suffering tragedy and depression, finally finds the inspiration to write again. And he pens these words, Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. And we must admit that these stories speak to us. Right? We must admit that there's a little tear comes to our eyes when we hear the, the Who's singing or, or George Bailey's friends coming around. They're singing, Hawk the Herald Angels sing as they're, they're giving him money. Or when Scrooge buys that big turkey for the Cratchit family and, and helps out to, uh, Tiny Tim to get the best doctors. We must admit that there's a, there's a little lump in our throat when we hear these stories, when we watch these movies. Now as Christians, as we're, as we're wiping our eyes at, at, at Scrooge's transformation, even though we've heard the story hundreds of times, <clears throat> even as we're enjoying these stories, part of us scoffs at this. We say, that's not the real meaning of Christmas. There's no mention of Christ. Maybe there's a superficial nod to a babe in a manger, but there's no cross. There's no redemption. There's no Holy Spirit power in these stories. And this is true. And this may shock some of you, but Christmas as we know it in this country is not really a Christian holiday. Christmas as we know it in America, even the religious aspects of it, are more influenced by Unitarians and, and liberal Protestants than by Scripture and by biblical Christianity. There was an article that recently came out in Christianity Today discussing the Unitarian and Episcopalian roots of our modern Christmas hymns and traditions. And, and this is true. See, the, the true meaning of Christmas, as expressed by our favorite Christmas movies and stories, is this peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This is very much in line with the Unitarian, Episcopalian, or, or liberal Protestant theology. And for these Traditions, their goal, their main goal, the main problem, the main purpose of these religions is to create a heaven on earth. See, these traditions seek to fight poverty, uh, seek to fight injustice in the world. They look to increase human flourishing in this world. And this is not a bad thing. This is not a bad thing at all. This is something we should all strive to do. This is not opposed to scripture. And they see that the power to create this heaven on earth, that it resides in us. Of course, we need God's help but mainly it is up to us. However, the Bible shows us something different. The Bible shows the main problem is not poverty. The main problem is not injustice. The main problem is not the lack of human flourishing. See, these things are simply the result of our true problem. And our true problem is rebellion. Rebellion against God. Estrangement 
from God. And my friends, we will never, we will never solve these secondary problems until we deal with the primary problem. However, the Bible makes it clear. It teaches that ending this estrangement from God is something that we cannot do on our own. Only God can do this. And sadly, the Christmas stories that we love so much, those that, that bring those tears to our eyes, the peace on earth, goodwill toward men, the true meaning of, of, of Christmas, sadly, this is built on faulty, faulty theology. It doesn't fit the biblical reality of life in this fallen world. And as Bible-believing Christians, I believe there are two errors that we can make with respect to this cultural Christmas. The first is for us to think that it's actually biblical. First is to think that the, the main goal of Christianity is really to make a heaven on earth. The main goal is to end all poverty, to end all injustice, to increase human flourishing, and to, to usher in this utopian paradise. In other words, we are not to adopt the Unitarian or the liberal Protestant theology. Now, this doesn't mean as, as individual Christians, we are not personally called to combat poverty, to combat injustice. It doesn't mean that we're not to strive to serve, to increase human flourishing, wherever we can, wherever we are. And we certainly are to do this. But we know, we know that true justice and true flourishing are only found in Christ and only found when we are in a relationship with Christ. And if we are to bring flourishing, if we are to bring prosperity apart from Christ, it will ultimately lead to greater misery. It will ultimately lead to eternal misery. So that's the first error. The second error, and I think one that is probably more common in our theological tradition, the second error is really to have disdain and, and mockery on this cultural Christmas. Our theological forefathers, the, the Calvinistic Puritans, actually made it illegal to celebrate Christmas. And there, there are some today in our tradition that will reject a lot of the things, the, the greening of the church that we, that we have here, the Advent candles, they were rejected. Even me preaching a, a different sermon on Christmas because they would say that this is cultural Christmas is not Christian. But I think both of these reactions, both, uh, both thinking it's biblical and becoming like the Unitarians and, and liberal Christians or scoffing at it, I think both of them, these reactions are wrong. While the cultural Christmas message, the, the true meaning of Christmas that we see in these beloved stories, while this is not biblical, I do believe in them that we see common grace. We see common grace in these. And how do I mean this? In this cultural Christmas, uh, this common grace Christmas, we see a recognition. We see a recognition that this world, this fallen world, is simply not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way we want it to be. It's, it's not the way that, that, that we, we, we are yearning for something better. And these stories that we, that we hear, and the reason they're so appealing to us is because I think they tap into this yearning. They tap into this yearning that we would finally be uh, released from this fallen world. A, a longing for restoration. A longing for heaven. And this is a longing, I think, that every single one of us has. Every single one of us, by the mere fact that we are creating God's image, we have this longing. We recognize that this world is not right, and we want something better. But the problem with these stories, the problem with this true meaning of Christmas, the, the problem with this underlying Unitarian and, and, and liberal Protestant theology, is that it, it's not that they want the wrong things. No, it's not that they have the wrong goals. No, they want the right things. The problem is they have the wrong solution to this correct 
problem, this correct desire. See, I think the solution is within us. And if we, if, we, if we just love one another better, if we just seek universal brotherhood, if we just seek peace on earth and goodwill toward men, then we can somehow muscle it out. Somehow we can make this happen. <clears throat> My friends, it simply doesn't work. It doesn't work. Not for the long haul. Not at the heart level. Maybe for a little while we can, we can, we can muscle it out, but not for over a lifetime. And not at the heart level. On our own, we simply do not have the ability to do this. And it's the right desire, but we have no ability to do it. And in looking at ourselves will eventually bring frustration. It will eventually lead us to cynicism. But this doesn't mean that there's no value in this desire. God can and he does use this common grace longing for restoration found in this true meaning of Christmas, this cultural Christmas, to draw unbelievers to himself. And I think we see an example of this in today's reading about the wise men, about the magi. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 2. So verse 1 tells us that the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. So who are these wise men? Who are these magi? We're not given much information. We don't know exactly where they're from. They may have been from Babylon. They may have been from Persia. We also don't know how many there were. We usually picture three in our nativity scenes. And I think that's simply because of the, the three gifts, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. But again, the text doesn't tell us how many there are. And most likely, there were more than three. And if they came from Babylon, this is about 800 miles from Bethlehem, from Jerusalem. And they would have had to most likely travel in in a large group with guards and and attendants. So what do we know? What do we know here? Well, we know that God had given these magi a sign. Gave them a sign in the heavens. And they saw what they say. They saw his star. Again, we don't know specifically what this means. What does a star look like? Was it an alignment of constellations? That's what some people think. Was it a supernova? Was it a comet? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what's important is that they recognized it. They saw that there was something in this, and it caused them to act. Now, presumably, whatever the sign specifically was, it would have been visible for all to see, not just these magi. But God gave these magi the ability not only to see the sign, but to recognize its importance. They knew that it meant a king was born. Not just any king, but a mighty king, a king whose, whose birth was so amazing that it would justify these magi traveling 800 miles, not an easy task, traveling 800 miles to worship him, a king of the Jews. And we don't know how they knew this, but what they do know, what we know, is that they knew they needed more information. This star and this revelation that the king of the Jews was born, this was not enough for them. They needed more. They needed to find other Jews who knew about this amazing event. So where did they go? They traveled to Jerusalem, to the city of God's people, the city where the Jewish temple was, where God's people reside. And there they were able to find men who knew the scripture and men who could give them the further information that they needed. And what is this further information they found? It was found in Scripture. It led them to Scripture. The chief priest, the scribes, knew the Scripture, and they found the prophecy from Micah 5 about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. That was the reading that Hannah read for us for our writing of the, the Advent candle this morning. And you see that the Magi, these are, these are people who are outside of God's covenant community. They are led by God to Scripture. And to Scripture, not apart from Scripture, and but through Scripture, 
then through Scripture, it leads them to the Messiah. So God leads them to find his word. And then when they find his word, he leads, uses their word, his word to find the Messiah, to lead them to Christ. And we can think of this star that led the wise men and gave them a sense of its significance. <clears throat> we can think of this as common grace. And this was a sign in the heavens. And it was, it was available for all to see. I mean, imagine if we suddenly saw some star, a, a supernova or a comet that, that was a bright star moving across the heavens. That would get our attention. But the Magi, they were, they were compelled to follow the star. They were compelled to find this king and to worship him. And there may have been many Magi. They, they may have come from different places and they may have all joined up together on the road and coming all compelled by the star, all drawn by an invisible force, by the star. And this is God's common grace. And it doesn't save them. It's not salvific. They're not saved by the star. They're saved by Christ. But it leads them to Christ. And God had gotten their attention with the star. And they needed to know what it meant. They needed to to find this newborn king and worship him. And God directed him to the answer. He directed them to Scripture, to those who knew and those who could interpret Scripture. Now, notice that not everyone reacts the same way. Now that they had been, uh, uh, there may have been others who saw the star and and felt the same type of compulsion to follow it. But they said, I'm not not going 800 miles. So they, they quickly put that out of their head. They ignored that. Now, this is speculation. We don't know it from the text. But what we do have in the text is there's at least one other person. One other person who knew this prophecy, who knew what this prophecy meant. It knew that it meant the Messiah, the king of the Jews, was born in Bethlehem. And that person was Herod. But Herod does not seek to worship him. Herod seeks to destroy him. And why is this? Why does Herod seek to destroy him? Well, that's because Herod wants to be king himself. He doesn't want to submit to anyone. Herod refuses to bow his knee to this true king of the Jews. And the information is here. Herod knows what he needs to know. He just doesn't like. He doesn't like what this information is telling him. And Herod refuses to voluntarily submit to the real king. He refuses to take this grace that's given him, this information that's given to him, and he does not want to submit to Jesus. See, those who genuinely seek God, those who genuinely want to know God on his terms, And those who are willing to submit to him, again, on his terms, they will find him. But the problem is, the problem is so many don't like Jesus' terms. We don't want to go to Jesus on his terms. We want to go to him on our terms. We want him to be our helper. We want him to give us assistance. We want him to give us the edge. We We want to continue to remain in control. We want to remain sovereign. We do not want to submit to him. I've told my testimony many times. When I was in my 20s, I started listening to Christian radio and reading the Bible. And it was really all out of a a sinful motive. It wasn't to to know God. It wasn't to worship God. Rather, what I wanted to do is to to gain the, the, the ancient wisdom that was in the Bible so that it could help me in my career. And I could apply it so I could be successful in my career. See, I saw God as a, a means. I saw the scripture as a means to my success, not the end in itself. But as I've told many times, God had, had made it clear to me that this was real, that he was real, that scripture is real. And he made it clear to me that he was not happy with what I was doing. I was profaning what was holy. And as I mentioned, this led me to, to a panic attack. I, I was terrified 
but it also changed me. My whole motivation changed. No longer was I reading scripture for my own selfish glory, but rather I said, Lord, okay, if you are real, if this is real, I want to know you on your terms. My friends, that changed everything. That changed everything. Because the Lord answered that prayer. Short time later, I heard the gospel on the radio as I was driving to work that summer of 1995, as I was driving to work. I heard it. I heard it. And I was converted. I'm sure I heard the words before, but I hadn't heard it in my heart. I hadn't heard it with my spirit. I hadn't been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what if I would have rejected it? What if I would have rejected the light given to me, the common grace? What if I said, no, I want to continue down the same path. I want to continue my, my sinful pursuit of my own glory. I want to use the Bible for, for its ancient wisdom to help me with my career. Or reject the Bible altogether and look at ancient wisdom somewhere else, in the Book of Mormon or in the Koran or in Hindu text or, or Buddhist text. I would have never heard the gospel. If I never made that change and said, God, I want to know you on your terms, I would have never heard the gospel. I would have never been born again. And we see these two possible responses here. There are two possible responses to common grace. One is to accept it and, and, and to go close to it, or one is to reject it and move far away. We see these two responses here. We see that in that of the wise men who are accepting the common grace and getting closer to it. And we see it of Herod in rejecting the common grace that's given to him and pushing him away. So the wise men, they submit to the revelation that's given to them. They seek Christ on Christ's terms. They seek to worship him. But Herod, Herod refuses. And look at the results of these two choices. The wise men, they're given further revelation. In verse 9, it says that the star that they had seen when it rose, went forth from them and led them right to the place, right to the place where Jesus was. They got further revelation. They got further grace. And how did they feel about this? How did they feel about this further revelation? How did they feel about this further grace? Were they terrified? Did they do it grudgingly? Did they say, we, we came 800 miles, now we got to continue going? Was this a burden? No. <clears throat> Look at verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. See, they were seeking God. They desired him above all else. And God gave them the desires of their heart. And following the star and worshiping Christ, they were fulfilling the chief end of man. They were glorifying God. And they were also rejoicing and enjoying him. And my friends, that's what worship is. That's what worship is. Worship is simply, it's, it's, its most essence is enjoying God. We enjoy God so much that, we, that we, we can't contain it. We naturally explode in excitement. It's like watching a baby, like watching Elias. When he's so excited, he was naturally going to explode. That's how we are. We can't resist. It's not forced. It's not formal. It's not something we have to, to, to drudge up. Genuine worship is spontaneous. It comes from the heart. And again, it, genuine worship is on God's terms. We don't worship him the way we want to be worshipped. We worship him the way he tells us in his word he wants to be worshipped. This is what we call the, the regulative principle. That's the way we worship him here, by the way his word tells him. And then we see, then we see the Magi willingly and joyfully give the gifts to Jesus. And they do this as a sign of their submission to him. And there's, there's so much symbolism and foreshadowing here. We don't really have time to go into it, but this is a foreshadowing of God's redemptive plan. See, the worship of these Gentile magi, they foreshadow the gospel going out to the Gentiles. It foreshadows a time when all the world, all the world will come together to worship the king of the Jews. 
It also symbolizes the believers as they're bringing these treasures, the believers laying down their treasures at the feet of Jesus. Treasure that, that he gave to us and we return to him as the sign of, of our worship and of our praise and our thanksgiving. <clears throat> but there's also practical benefits. Also practical benefits of these gifts. And as we see in, in, in the very next section, Joseph is warned in a dream to leave Bethlehem and to flee to Egypt. And these gifts, they may have been used by this family to support themselves while they were in this time in Egypt. And the text doesn't explicitly tell us, but I believe that these wise men, they actually show genuine faith in Jesus. Now, it's based on a limited understanding. They didn't didn't understand Jesus like we did. They didn't know about the atonement. They only had a limited information. But based on a limited information, I think it was a genuine faith that they had. I think they were genuinely converted. They were regenerated when they worshipped Jesus. I believe we will see them in heaven. And notice, after they worshipped Jesus in, in verse 12, then they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And there's no prior indication that the Lord was giving them this type of direct revelation through dreams. See, the common grace of the star, they didn't give them direct revelation. The star led them to Scripture, and Scripture was what gave them the direct revelation to where they would find the child. But now, now they're being led really the same way that the godly Joseph was being led, through dreams. Now, obviously, dreams are not the way that God normally communicates to his people, certainly not the way he communicates to his people now. But I think what this is, is this an indication that the wise men are now the people of God. They are now converted. They now have the Holy Spirit leading them. And that's what they're leading them through this dream, just like he led Joseph. So these are the wise men. That's, that, that's one response that we can have to this common grace. Now let's look, the, sadly, the, the wrong response to this common grace. Let's contrast that with Herod. Where the wise men responded to the common grace given to them by seeking to find and, and, and worship Christ, Herod rejects the common grace that's given to him. Herod refuses to submit. God then remu- removes what little grace that he had, what little um, restraining grace, what little common grace is removed from Herod. And then Herod sinks further and further into depravity. And <clears throat> Herod reacts in a way that is utterly evil. Herod, in a paranoid rage, orders the slaughter of all the baby boys, two and under, in Bethlehem. Even unbelievers are rightly horrified by this abhorrent action. And I think this shows us something crucial here. See, there's no neutrality when it comes to God. See, we are either moving toward him or we are moving away from him. And if we move toward him, we are given more light. If we move toward him, we're giving more understanding, more love. We grow in grace. But if we move away from him, we have less light. We have more confusion. We grow cold toward God. We become more hostile to God, hostile to his people. We become more depraved. Our New Testament reading this morning from Philippians 2 tells us that one day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, all humanity, all humanity was created to worship God. That is our natural disposition. And one day we will all bow to him. Now there are two ways this can happen. Two ways. Either we will bow joyfully, bow voluntarily to to our loving, gracious, heavenly Father. Or we will be forced to bow resentfully. But we will all bow. And God's common grace will either draw unbelievers closer to Scripture, closer to Him, 
so that one day they will voluntarily bow their knee in worship, or common grace will drive them further away, farther away from God, and they will refuse to follow the light they're giving. <clears throat> See, there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. We either move toward God or we move away from him. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I believe our cultural understanding of Christmas and the Christmas spirit and the true meaning of Christmas, I believe this is God's common grace to this world. God has given the unbeliever a longing for heaven, a longing for restoration, and really an unrecognized longing for himself. And this longing is expressed in the unbeliever in the common grace Christmas feeling that we see in all these movies and stories. It's expressed by our love for these, these stories and, 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 and uh, our genuine, really, our genuine desire for it to be true. Our genuine desire for there to really be peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But as we get older, we realize that the Christian spirit is not enough. We realize that no matter how hard we try on our own, even, even though we desperately want it to be true, we get beaten down by this life. And, and, and we've, we're, we get beaten down by this fallen world, and, and we basically get cynical. The second to last verse in Longfellow's poem says this. It says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And this is a reaction that we will all eventually come to if we look only to ourselves, if we look only to this world for, for heaven on earth that we so desperately seek. We will end up like the preacher in, in Ecclesiastes. You know Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Meaningless. All is meaningless in this fallen world. This is the conclusion that each one of us would come to. And I don't know if Longfellow was a born-again believer or if he was a Unitarian, but I think the last verse of his poem hints at the answer to the cynicism. He says, Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the answer to what we desire is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our Christmas spirit. It's not found in peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's found only in Christ. It's found only in the gospel. It's not found in a safe story about a cute little baby in a manger surrounded by farm animals and shepherds and wise men. It's found in the eternal second person of the Trinity, the creator and sustainer of the universe, condescending to being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My friends, only Christ, only the gospel can solve humanity's true problems. Only Christ and the gospel can bring reconciliation between sinful men and a holy God. My friends, we have been entrusted with this gospel. We've been entrusted with this message that the world desperately needs to hear. And this Christmas, may we not naively parrot the world's vision of the Christmas spirit. And may we not smugly despise those who are, who are desperately seeking some hope that it promises. Rather, let us recognize, let us recognize God's common grace in these stories and in these movies and use them. Use them as an opportunity to point people beyond the fantasy of their cultural Christmas and to the reality of Christ, a reality that is infinitely more glorious than the fantasy. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your common grace. And Father, there are so many that we know, so many that we love, 
who are desperately seeking restoration of this fallen world. They know that this world is not the way it should be, but they think that they have in their own their ability to make that change. If they just have the right education, the right social programs, uh, the right uh, philosophies, no, we cannot do it. It has to be from outside ourselves. It has to come from you. You have to reach down to us and change us so that we can then be brought out of this fallen world and, and brought to the world that we've been created for. And so, Father, I pray that you will give us, as Christians who have the gospel, who have Christ, give us the confidence, give us the boldness to proclaim the only saving message, that is, Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray this in his name. Amen.